Hello, my name is Nathan, and if you've been here in the last three months, uh, you wonder, are you really a pastor of this church? And I am. So uh, let me say right out of the, right out of the gate, um, thank you again to you, members of Restoration Church, for the great gift of uh, this sabbatical. Um, sabbaticals are not deserved. Sabbatical, sabbatical, some people have said that in trying to be kind to me, and I appreciate that, but uh, we don't deserve uh, a sabbatical. Uh, it's a gift of grace by God from you, and we receive it as such. And so we're so thankful uh, that you would give us such an amazing gift. So uh, we, uh, we did miss you. Um, the beach was nice in January. Just being honest. Love being at the beach and swimming in the ocean when you guys, I'm checking the weather every day and it's like seven degrees up here and I was praying for you, but I was enjoying my time down there and uh, we're just so thankful. So I want you to know that what you hoped would happen, happened to us. We're refreshed, we're encouraged, and we're glad to be here. So I'd like the weather from down there to be up here, but I'm glad to be here. Uh, my wife and I are glad to be here ministering with you. There's nobody else on planet earth that I would rather be doing life with than with you. I love you, I'm thankful for you, and I'm so, so thankful that you gave us this great gift. So uh, this sermon, many of you know that my assignment over the course of the sabbatical was to study the hope of heaven, not what's heaven like, the hope of heaven. So this sermon is an attempt to give to you what I've been thinking about for two and a half months. It might take that long to preach it, just to warn you. So, working on that. But uh, let me pray for us as we open up God's Word and consider this. And let me also say before I pray, praise the Lord for nine years. Nine years. I remember the days, Joey, when we were sitting at the front porch of a, of a little place in uh, Wake Forest, North Carolina, wondering if this church would ever come into existence. And here it is, nine years later. Uh, I know many church, churches that, by the grace of God, under, under His providence, that have not made it two or three or four years. I met with a pastor yesterday that has been past, that's pastoring a church that's been going for 166 years. So may that be the story of our church. So thank God. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, be glorified in the preaching of your word. Ready us to receive it. And may we be changed by a glorious vision of heaven. In Christ's name, amen. Children, thank you, Cal. It's been a while since I've done this. So off you go, children. Yeah, kids are dismissed. And uh, as they go back, let me ask you guys a question. Uh, Have you ever wondered why... Your life so often does not match up with what you say you believe. Why is our lives don't match up with what we say we believe? Now, I'm pulling off of uh, the good work of James K. Smith in his book, uh, You Are What You Love. Why is it our lives don't often match up with what we say we believe? So, for instance, we as Christians believe that sexual immorality is not a good idea. It's wrong. And yet it's known that Christians will imbibe pornography. We believe as Christians that Christ is king, and yet... We often live by our own decrees, don't we, more than his. And even if you're here this morning not trusting in Christ, you probably believe that exercise is good. And yet, not only do you not exercise, you eat at McDonald's and binge watch Netflix, right? Why do we not live out what we say we believe? Well, let me tell you what it's not. It's not that you just need more information. You might be tempted to believe that. Here in America, in the information age, if I just get some more information, then I'll start to live out what I say I believe. Yet the reality is we have more information than we're already obeying. Right? We can think about this as Christians, that there are pastors in uh, China, remote regions of China, and in northern Iraq that have less theology than we have in our minds, that are loving God more than we are. So it's not just information that will get us there. And also, too, if you're not trusting in Christ, you should know that while we do want to answer your intellectual doubts about the faith. You should know it's not just the answers to those faiths that will get you to the finish line of loving Jesus. So what is it we need? Well, what we need, what you need, what we all need, is not merely information. We do need information, but we need more than information. We need what my brother Nick Teku so often reminds us of. We need a greater vision for our lives. See, we do what we do not merely because, friends, of what we believe. We do what we do because we are motivated by a particular vision of the good life that operates down deep in our hearts. 
That vision, whatever it may be, that we have down deep in our hearts, that's the command center of our lives. It's deeper than our intellects. Our vision of the good life drives us in our decision-making more than what we say we believe. And guys, Hollywood, Madison Avenue, Walt Disney, they get this oftentimes more than the church does. I'll give you a perfect example of this. So while on sabbatical, we came across this commercial, this Mazda commercial. Uh, You've probably seen it before. So uh, it opens up with this inspirational music, and there's a kid sitting in a locker room, and he's dreaming, right, about these big things. And this inspirational music comes on. And then after that, all these other scenes, a girl's boxing, a kid's learning how to play the drums. And there's this guy climbing a mountain, a girl's looking into stars and wondering. And all this inspirational music is coming across the scene. And then the narrator comes on and says, oh, I wrote this down because I wanted to get it right. The narrator comes on and says, do your thing. Take that step. Flee that nest. Realize, fulfill, run, don't walk. Then they have a picture of a guy and a girl kissing. Love, not like. Be inspired. Spread your wings. And then on comes a picture of a Mazda. (laughs) Now we, it's funny that y'all laugh because the reason why I remember that is because I used to say to my my kids, I think it's funny because no offense if you have a Mazda, but it's like a regular normal car. So it's like, you know, be inspired by this ordinary car, you know. They never tell you about the car. You ever notice that? What size engine, what miles per gallon it gets. See, they know that the facts about the car will not motivate you to buy the car. Even though it might be good information, true information. They want your dreams, your desires, your vision of the good life to match up with a Mazda. That's how they get you to change your behavior. And this is every Disney movie. This is every advertisement. Take inspirational ideas and stories that you love and match their product, their agenda, their idea onto your dreams, your loves. That's how they get you to change your behavior. And they're doing this because they've read Jesus' playbook. This is a, they're borrowing from our book. Wasn't it Jesus that said, where your treasure is, what? There your heart will be also. So here's why I tell us that to set up this text. I believe that much of the reason why so many of us fail to live the Christ-exalting lives that we say we believe and want is because of this. We have no meaningful vision of a life with Christ and His people. Specifically, what that vision looks like up ahead of time, in front of us. We intellectually believe Christ is Lord. We have some affection for Him. Many have changed. We have changed in some ways, but we still struggle to take the next step. And so, as I've said, the change that we all want as a people in our own lives, it will not come primarily or merely by information. We don't need lights, camera, and action. We don't need more relevant teaching or engaging worship experiences. All of that borrows from the world and its story. What we need is a better vision. A vision that's not made up, one that has been hidden to us in plain view. We need to rediscover the hope of our salvation. The hope of heaven. What's in front of us. So that by that vision, we might be changed for today. We've got to think about that. So that's my goal for us today on this, our ninth anniversary. It's a big goal. I hope to reorient our lives together as a church in our seeing the vision of what's in front of us, so that by that vision we might then come together as a church, live more faithfully, do even more than the things we've already seen in the past nine years by His grace and for His glory. And I'll be doing that from Romans chapter 8. What an amazing chapter in the Bible. Let me set the context really quick for you here in the book of Romans. Romans is in the New Testament. By this point, Christ has come, buried, resurrected, and ascended. All right. We're picking up midstream of Paul's argument. He's the author of this letter. Paul is an apostle. He's writing from his church plant in Corinth to the church in Rome that's having some issues with Jew and Gentiles getting together. And Paul begins in chapter 1 of Romans talking about creation. And then what he's going to do is he's going to bring it eventually down to kind of sum up his argument in chapter 8 here. Namely, with heaven. Starts with creation and kind of makes sense of creation by heaven namely jew and gentile are all part of this thing that's what he's trying to do 
And just before this passage, he talks about justification in Romans 8.1. And then he kind of mentions kind of sanctification, how we need to be setting our minds on the spirit, not on the flesh to keep following Jesus. That brings us to Romans 8 verse 15. Actually, verse 18 is where I'll start. Verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. The redemption of our bodies. For in this hope. We were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes and for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see. We wait for it. With patience. Now guys there are a thousand amazing things. That we talk about in this passage. So I'm going to try to be laser focused on verse 24a. Those first Seven words of verse 24. That's going to kind of be our passage. And I'm going to kind of use all the other things around it to make sense of what's going on in verse 24a. In there, verse 24a, is the vision that we need in order to be changed as a people. And I want you to notice it's a vision for a future story of a good life. So while I was on sabbatical, uh, I had a few days at the beginning of it. About three days spent alone. At the back end, I had about a week alone. And in between that time, I kind of took office hours Monday to Friday, uh, about 8.30 to 1.30 or so. And what I would do most of the time, I'd spend time in prayer. And then I'd open up the Bible and I'd just read stretches of the, of the New Testament. Started in Matthew, just go on through. Six, seven, eight, sometimes whole books of the Bible in a single setting. Then I'd spend time in prayer. And when I came to this verse right here, I literally stopped. Verse 24, I literally just stopped. I was so moved and jarred by what Paul said. I wasn't expecting what he said. And the reason why I stopped was because I I read Paul here in this passage to say that the doctrine that ultimately saves us is not justification. It includes justification. But more than that, he says in verse 24, it's something yet to come. The hope of glorification. Is what saves us. I wasn't expecting that argument. So let me show you this argument. Go back and work through it. Take a look at verse 18. Paul says all of creation is groaning. It's yearning. It's groaning because the Lord subjected it to corruption as a consequence of the fall. As a consequence of Adam and Eve's decision to rebel against God. Go their own way. God then subjects creation to corruption. That's verse 20. When they chose, Adam and Eve, to rebel against God, sin, death, corruption, brokenness enters into the world. So in other words, creation was sort of like a tall, cold, fresh glass of water. That as a result of Adam and Eve's sin, God then chose to permit poison to enter into that cup of water and corrupt it all. And that is why corruption and broken exist today. So you heard us pray for that cyclone. We can think about the, the, uh, the, the, the murders from last week. All the brokenness. That's why it's here. As a consequence of man choosing to rebel against God. Both physical corruption and spiritual and even interrelational corruption. Brokenness, friends, is not the consequence of socially constructed ideas. That's a man-centered way of seeing the world. Corruption, brokenness, these things are the consequences of a world that is separated from a good God. So, creation eagerly longs. It eagerly longs. It longs, listen to me, to not just return to the glory that it had in Eden. Creation longs for the glory that it will know in the new heavens and new earth that will be even more. 
It knows. There's a sense in which creation knows there's something greater that's coming. And it's longing for that. But how will that glory come? What is the hope of creation to reverse the curse? We'll look at verse 20 again. In the hope or in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So creation is groaning under its bondage to corruption and it wants to obtain, it says, the creation wants to get the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's what it's looking for, to be set free. Now what's that? What's the freedom of the glory of the children of God? Well, that's verse 23. It's not the, here's what it says again, it's not only creation that groans this way, but those who hope in Christ. We who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we eagerly wait for adoption as sons. What's that? The redemption of our bodies. So Paul says that creation groans and eagerly waits to get the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And the glory of the children of God is the full adoption. What's the full adoption? Redemption or resurrection of our bodies. Now, in case some of you are confused because you thought Christians had already been adopted, we'll slide back up in verse 15. Take a look there. You can see up there that, yes, we who are in Christ have been adopted, but we are only experiencing now the first fruits of that adoption. The full privileges of adoption are realized when we receive the freedom of glory. Verse 23, the redemption of our bodies, or in a word, glorification. Glorification. Glorification for the Christian is when, like Jesus in his resurrection, our sanctified souls, our spirits, match up with our bodies. Just like we see in Jesus' resurrection. We have the first fruits of that adoption spiritually now, but we still wait for the materialization, the full adoption of it. Let me give you an example to make sense of this. We had a couple in our church uh, three or four years ago that adopted a little boy in Korea. They fly over there. They see him. They play with him. They do some paperwork. And they, they in essence, have him then. But there's still other steps that need to have to, to have to go through. So they fly back to the States for a number of months until eventually all that stuff gets worked out. And then they could fly back, pick him up, and take him home. They had him when they first went there, the first visit. But it wasn't until that second visit, after all these other proceedings had to happen, that they could bring him home. That's what's going on. Our first adoption is Christ having spiritually adopted us. And yet we still wait for that second trip when Christ will have our bodies and spirits to match up. And this is exactly what John, the Apostle John, writes about in 1 John 3. When he says, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But when he, Jesus, appears, we will be like him. Remember, he's in a glorified state now, Jesus. We will be like him because we will see him as he is. So Jesus died for sin, rose bodily for sin. As a consequence of our sin, he made a atoning work on the cross for those that trust him he uh, buried he's uh, resurrected three days later he ascended into heaven and he will return bodily to bring heaven to earth bringing that final stage of full adoption full redemption full restoration full glorification where we get our spiritual uh, and physical bodies back together as one on a glorified and resurrected earth that's the step we wait for that's our hope creation is longing groaning to see that day come because it knows that it creation knows that it will get glorified after we get glorified that's the final state a world completely restored all things as jesus said made new just as mankind sinned and brought an end mankind has to be made right in order for creation to get right first and it is after this that we get those words that floored me verse 24 in this hope, we were saved. What hope is he talking about? Verse 23, the hope of glorification. Paul says that it is the hope of glorification in which we are saved. Now, here is why that 
that floored me, if it's not already clear. How is it we normally talk about salvation in the life of this church? Or for that matter, how is it we talk about salvation in any healthy church, any gospel-loving church? How is it they normally talk about salvation? Don't we normally play, explain it by the doctrine of justification? And that now how we normally talk about it, we normally say that by grace through faith in Christ alone, you trust in Jesus, your sin goes to him on the cross, his righteousness comes to you and gets counted to you. And that, of course, let me set you at ease. That's true. All right? We got to have that. That's critical. That's what the whole Reformation was about in recovering. So important. Christ, Christ getting us, that's, that, that's, that's his justification, getting counted to us. That is right. We need that. It's critical to get that right. But it's not complete. It is not the great and final hope of the Bible. I want you to think about this. Christian, you will never be more justified than you are right now. When you get to heaven, glorified body, glorified earth, Christ has returned, you will be just as justified then as you are right now. Because it's Christ's righteousness that is yours. And it will be then. But the reality is we all know we're still missing something, right? We're still missing glorification. We're still missing completion, both spiritual and physical. We still lack full redemption, resurrection, adoption, glorification. Which is why Paul goes on to say, look down there at verse 24 and 25. This is why Paul goes on to say that we don't hope in something we already have. See, for those of us in Christ, we already have justification. We don't need to hope in it, as it were. But we do need to hope in something that has not yet happened. Glorification. And that's why Paul says that this is the hope in which we are saved. Now, to be clear, it's important that you understand this, especially if you're not trusting Christ. You need to know when we say hope as Christians, we're not saying hope like wishful thinking hope. Right. We believe as Christians right, like that our hope is not like I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. Not that kind of hope. It's a certainty. It's a certainty. We as Christians are people of hope because our greatest desire is not yet realized. It hasn't come yet. We do not yet have what we want. God's will is not yet completely being done on earth as it is in heaven. Resurrected bodies on a resurrected earth because of the resurrection of our great Redeemer, Jesus Christ, glorification. That hasn't happened yet. And that's what we want. Isn't it supposed to be? And the great news is, is God has promised that that's going to happen. And God does not lie. It's going to happen. It is in that hope, the hope of glorification, this final stage. That's the hope in which we are saved, Paul says. And so if we are all being honest, most of us, though, don't think much about glorification. We don't pray much. We don't preach it much. Don't sing it much. Do you see the problem? Do you see why it stopped me when I was reading it? If it's true that we're not thinking much about glorification, not praying much, not hoping much in it. So when Paul says in verse 24, it's in that hope that which we are saved, what does that say about our salvation? We don't think much about it. I put the Bible down and I just, I I wrestled with the Lord. What's... I want to be clear here. I'm not trying to say that we're all not saved in the room. I do want to hold that out as a possibility for some of you in this room. What I'm trying to help us see or what Paul is trying to get us to see is that if we are going to be changed into the people that we say we are and believe, it won't merely be by more information. It's not merely going to be, it's not going to be just this more relevant worship experiences and relevant teaching. We are even, dare I say it, we're going to need more, dare I say it, we're going to even need more than justification. We need a sight of the future glory to come. That's going to be, that's the vision that's going to bring us into change. True and lasting change. We need a bigger vision for our lives out in front of us as a church. As Christians, we need to look back at our justification. Yes and amen, often, every day. And then from looking at that justification, we then look forward 
and are oriented by that forward hope of glorification. We're going to have to use it, see it that way if we're going to really see the change that we all want and match up our lives to what we say we believe. We're going to have to do more often, employ the hope of tomorrow to have meaningful change for today. We as Christians are good at thinking about past stuff, and rightfully so. But we've got to be more oriented towards the future after looking at the past. We've got to think more tomorrow if we're going to be changed for today. So we're going to need to employ this. Paul has shown us that. And guys, I honestly believe this is a major key why so many of us are stuck or bored in the Christian life. We've domesticated the gospel. We've left the good news as something that happened in the past that we need to kind of get on board with. We've not employed the glorious vision of a future that Jesus paid for at the cross. Which makes sense of why so many kids after college leave the church. Because we've made the story of the gospel so small. And it's not. It's not small. It's not a nice little quaint story that happened in the past to some first century Jew. This is a glorious vision for something in the future. This is not the gospel. It's not just good advice. It's news. It's news, news that Christ has come, that he has purchased salvation, justification for us in Christ at the cross. And in that resurrection, we see the first fruits of what's coming three days later. It was a teaser. It was meant to be a teaser. That's why it's called first fruits. And so the very same future that Jesus talked about and illustrated in his miracles, the kingdom of heaven on earth, that's in front. And so we look back to justification so that we might then be future-oriented people that are staring, gazing, longing, hoping in the coming glorification. When we were in Florida, one of the reasons I went down there was the warmth of the weather. But one of the other reasons we went down there is because I wanted to be close to a beach not a huge beach guy per se, but I love to look at sunsets. There's something about them, isn't there? It's beautiful. It's there's often quiet. Something stirring about it. You know, like the Mazda commercials, I'm an inspiration junkie. You know. And we would go out to those sunsets as often as we could, and they were beautiful. I've got plenty of pictures to show you if you want to see them. But one of the times we went out there, uh, we went out to this pier. And this pier had, we went out there to watch the sunset. And, and this pier, a lot of people, to my surprise, started coming out to watch the sunset. All kinds of people. That's the, that's the time where all the snowbirds, the people that live in New York and stuff, they come down there. And so they're out on this pier when the sun's going down. And we're standing out there. And I look around, there's hundreds of people coming out just to watch the sun sink into the ocean. And we're sitting out on that pier. And as the sun goes down, there's literal like sailboats going by. I mean, it's just like you'd see in a car. It's beautiful. It was quiet. Even though there's hundreds of people, it was quiet. And that sun sank into the ocean. It was gorgeous. Pelicans flying. It's beautiful. And to my surprise, upon that sun sinking into the ocean, everybody just, just a huge applause. They just started clapping. And I just immediately thought, that's right, right? It should be clear. It's beautiful. Right, it goes, and then they turn around and they walk back. And I'm walking back to with my sons and my wife. And I'm frustrated. And I say to my kids, <laughs> imagine living with me. So you say to my kids, <laughs> beautiful sunset. Everybody's happy. Here's the one guy, like the curmudgeon Christian. He's upset. And here's why. The reason why I'm so frustrated is because they're looking at this beautiful sunset. And they're applauding it. Because they rightfully understand the beauty in it. They see the beauty in it. But they don't hear it talking. They didn't hear it. The Bible says that that sunset was talking. And they applauded it, but they didn't listen. That beautiful sunset, guys, was talking. And it was saying, God is great. God is powerful. God is good. God is beautiful, more beautiful than this sunset. And the day's going to come when this whole earth is going to be more beautiful than this sunset. And they didn't hear it. They just walked away. They applauded it and left. If you're in Christ, you've been given ears to hear. 
You've been given ears to hear creation's longing. So I'm going to spend the rest of this sermon, what's left of it, having established that it is a backward glance and a forward lean to our glorification, a forward lean into our salvation and sanctification. So I'm going to do two things. I want to show you why, first briefly, why heaven is so glorious that it's worth suffering for. And then secondly, I'm just going to briefly mention a few ways we can cultivate a hope of heaven. One of my favorite quotes if you want, says, if, this old French dude said, if you want to build a boat, don't drum up people to collect wood and assign them tasks. Give them a, a vision for the immensity of the sea. That's what I'm going to try to do. Give you a vision for the immensity of the glory that is to come that you would be willing to suffer for. Look at verse 18. It's the worth of heaven. Look at verse 18. Paul says that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And then he just explains everything that I just explained. The glory of heaven, the glory of a resurrected earth populated by blood-bought, resurrected bodies of the redeemed, basking in the glow of our glorious King, Jesus the Christ, this is so wonderful, so glorious, so profoundly mesmerizing and astounding that the hardest part of our lives with Christ in the now, it's worth it. That's what he's saying. In other words, Paul is saying that if you, if you took the suffering that we have to experience both spiritually and physically in this world, in this time, that if you try and compare that to the glory of the life in heaven, it's not even worth comparing. There's no contest. It's foolish to even try and compare the two. That's what he's saying. So it would be sort of like, all right, guys, hey, listen, let's, let's compare which is heavier, a 2018 Ford F-150 or this bottle. Right? You would be like, like, Nathan, we don't even need to do that. Right! That's what Paul's saying. That's what Paul is saying. It's not even worth comparing. There's no contest. Our sufferings do not compare to the glory of heaven that is to come. It's so great, it's worth suffering for now. So in a parallel account in 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18, Paul says something similar. He says, listen, he says, we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day for this or because this light momentary affliction. Keep in mind, guys, the guy that's talking here has been beaten, battered, bruised, virtually killed numerous times. So he can say stuff like this, right? For this light momentary affliction, light, light is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look, notice notice the orientation of the Christian life. As we look, not to the things that are seen, not here, not now, but to the things that are unseen to come. As heavy as suffering is in the now, it cannot compare with the weight of the glory that is coming in heaven. So back into Romans 8, he says that all of creation is growing as in the pains of childbirth. That's verse 22. Now it's pains of childbirth. Never birthed a child. But I've seen it happen. And it ain't easy. Right? And here's the thing what Paul's saying. This earth, in all of its struggles, in all of its trials, it's in that pain of giving birth. Those cyclones, they're talking. And they're saying, this is hard now, but it's giving birth to something's coming. Right? When, it, when, it, when, a, when a mom has a child, it's painful, but she says afterward, hopefully, <laughs> I was worth it. I love my child. So in the same way, the suffering's now, it's giving birth, it's hard, it's difficult, but the child to come, heaven, is worth it. We're in the pain. So in the return of Christ, when he comes and establishes peace, love, justice on the earth, evil then is vanquished, sent away to everlasting punishment, and we put on everlastingly glorious bodies and live on a glorified earth. And it will be so amazing that like childbirth, these present sufferings will be worth it. So cancer, car accidents, murder, heart attacks, persecution, martyrdom, mockings, depression, shame, whatever other physical sufferings, they are not even grains of sand in comparison to the immensity of the mountain of the Lord. 
Same with spiritual sufferings that we all struggle with. Doubt. The struggle to obey the Lord's commands. To memorize Scripture. To show up to church on time. To love neighbor. To love enemy. To pray. To fast. To forgive. To give. To prefer others more than ourselves. To evangelize. Those struggles to do those things. All of these struggles, these sufferings, they can't even said to be flickers in comparison to the light of the Son of the glory of God in the face of Christ in the new earth. All those sufferings, spiritual and physical, they are momentary feathers in comparison to the eternal weight of glory and heaven that is being prepared for us. So soon enough, beloved, your back pain, your cancer, your depression, your shame, your guilt, your struggle to do as Jesus would have you, soon enough, hear me, soon enough, these struggles will cease and you, beloved, will rest on the shores of the Jordan River. You will eat honey and drink the milk of Canaan. You will sing songs of the angels. You will bask in the glow of a glorious Jesus that makes it all possible for His everlasting glory. You will work. Yes, you will have a job. But every waking moment of that work will be better than the best vacation you ever took on this corrupted earth. You will attend church and it will not be a bore. It will be glorious. He will not put you to sleep. You will look forward to church more than you look forward to Sunday afternoon naps. Thanks be to God, it will not be filled with people just like you. To the praise of God's glory will be full of the diversity of the nations. Just as my mom taught me to sing when I was a little boy. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in His sight. God loves the little children of the world. And we will love that diversity. We will eat the choicest foods and we will drink the richest wines. We will take walks on roads that will blow delicate breezes across our foreheads. The light of day will never fade as the glory of Christ will shine brightly forevermore. Isaiah tells us that for those who wait upon the Lord, our strength will be renewed. We will mount up on wings like eagles. We will run and not grow weary. We will walk and not be faint. The soil that we will sow in will be drunk with the glory of Christ. The air that we will breathe will be drenched with the excellencies of Jesus. Because God will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. He will be in all and with all because the dwelling place of God is with man. Which leads us to the most important part of heaven. Heaven is the household of God. He is its fancy. He is what makes it glorious. Apart from Him, there is nothing but darkness and decay. But with Him we have our all in all. Christ is the darling of heaven and we will be dazzled by his infinite love which will be infused into every aspect of the new earth. This is our great hope. Even the worst of our experiences here on earth cannot compare to it. And therefore, beloved, I beg of you, do not live for this world. Set your minds on things above where Christ currently is, your king is seated, not on things of the earth, where rust and moth destroy. Be dazzled by heaven's darling, Jesus, and live to be at home with him, for it is in that hope, this hope of glory, that we are saved, Paul says. It is in this hope that we grow and persevere in faith. Don't buy the trinkets this world's trying to sell you for heaven now. Resist the visions of the good life that this present world of darkness is trying to deceive you by. You will never have enough money, enough vacations, enough friends, enough family members, enough job titles to compare with the glory that comes when Christ returns. The more this vision for your life takes over and sinks into your heart and becomes the great hope with which you live, the more you will know the joy of your salvation. Build your treasures in heaven. And so you're saying, okay, how do I do that, Nathan? How do I live with that forward vision? Let me give you four ways to do that briefly. This is not one of the four, but let me just say that's cultivation of a forward vision, future vision. It's going to take time. Your heart and my heart is tied to visions of this earth. It's going to take some time to get there, okay? 
So just a review. Forward, certain hope of heaven is the vision we have to be saved and changed. Secondly, we said the sufferings of this present world are not worth comparing to this glory. And so now four ways we can cultivate a more hope in heaven, be more future-oriented people. First one, you know where this one's going. Join and meaningfully participate in a local church. That's what you got, Nathan? Yes. That's what the Bible's got. If we're going to be oriented by heaven, we need to be meaningfully committed and acquainted with heaven's people. Heaven's citizens. You heard AJ read that earlier. Just like if we wanted to come, if, if we wanted to come to know life in Bolivia, right? And we knew there were some Bolivian peoples on the west side of D.C. We would go over to the Bolivians. We would eat what the Bolivians ate. We would talk the way the Bolivians talk. We would treasure the things the Bolivians treasure in order to grow in this hope of living in Bolivia. So in the same way, If you're going to grow in your hope of heaven, you must join and meaningfully participate in a local church. Paul assumes that in this passage. Did you see it? Look at verse 22 of chapter 8. Notice these we's. Look at the we's. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning. 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption. Verse 24. For in this hope we were saved. 25, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Yes, beloved, Jesus saves individually. We in America love talking about that. That's so true and beautiful and good. But listen, Christ does not save us alone in order to keep us alone. Like any adoption, you were chosen to be brought into his family. And that's his church. As messed up and as crazy as it is sometimes. Guys, I have never met a Christian who was deeply in love with Christ and longing to be with him that was not faithfully committed to a local church. And likewise, the inverse is also true. I have met plenty of people who claim a love for Christ, struggle to hope in him, and as a result, they neglect his wife. We see that, the church. So to neglect the church or to keep her at arm's reach is to do the same to Jesus. Cyprian of Carthage, who died in 258 A.D., said... You can no longer have God for your father if you do not have the church for your mother. And remember, we are citizens of heaven. We are the redeemed out in front of time. We're supposed to be a preview of coming attractions. Our life together is supposed to be an appetizer of our life together in heaven. And so if you want to grow in your love for Christ, move closer to his people, learn to love them. And don't just date her, commit to her. Join a church. Watch how the Lord grows your vision of heaven by living amongst its citizens here on earth. And guys, this was the best part of my sabbatical. It wasn't the sunsets. That was great. The baseball was nice too. The warm weather was great too. Okay, maybe it was close to this one. But anyway, uh, we, joined, we, we, we worshipped two times in a church in Destin, two times at our sister church, Covenant Life in Tampa. But the other six or seven times was at Faith Bible Church in Naples, Florida. And it was heaven on earth. They loved us. Not because I was a pastor. I, I think they would have done it if you would go down there. They loved us. They taught us God's word. They prayed for us. We had to turn down meals because they just kept asking us to come over. Like we, we went like two or three. Like, dude, we, I got to go watch some sunsets. So I'm not coming over to your dinner. And they just loved us. But even when we think about these three churches, it was so awesome to see these other churches that believe the same gospel, teach the same Bible, that looked slightly different, that did things a little bit differently than us, and to think that that was happening all over the earth. And one day we're all going to come together in one service. That was so sweet. We loved being part of that church. We missed you. We loved being part of that church. The best things about this church were also in that one. Because they love Jesus. Members of Restoration Church, I encourage you then, don't just recite that covenant. Live it out. That's the way you hope in heaven. You see it. We made promises to one another to do this. So may we follow up on that. That's the future vision of the good life. That covenant. Live it out. Second way to cultivate a hope in heaven. Learn to wait eagerly for it. Learn to wait eagerly for it. You can see that there in verse 23. I realize it sounds like a contradiction of terms, doesn't it? Waiting eagerly. But you should note that that word wait is actually the same original word as the word hope in the passage. Same word. 
Translated two different ways. So the image here is not likened to just waiting in a doctor's office, you know, waiting, you know, waiting for action. No, it's a different, it's a hope. It's like you're on, uh, a lot of commentators call it like they're tiptoeing, looking for hoping in heaven, waiting on it. Waiting eagerly. Uh, we, we went to spring training games, four of them. We went to some practices, and my youngest son was a beast on getting autographs. And this kid was fierce. He yawned at my son, he's this tall, and man, he had so much courage, he wanted those autographs. And so he had his little ball, and he had his little pen, and this little eight-year-old boy ran up, and he would stand, and he would wait by those players, and he would watch, and they were catching, and he waited there. And there would be like all these eight, you know, seven-foot, six-foot men there, and there's my son, you know, he's, you know, just waiting, 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 waiting. And uh, he, he saw this ball one time. It was next to a fence, but he couldn't get to it. It was a Major League Baseball, and he just sat there and waited. And the guy came, and he said, can I have that ball, please? And the guy throws it to him, and he got it. He was waiting eagerly to see a superstar. He got Matt Carpenter's autograph. He loved it. That's a good picture of waiting eagerly. Wanting to see, but here's the good news for us. Our superstars promise to come. He promised that he will come. We wait eagerly for him to arrive. It's a good image. Build rhythms into your life where you teach yourself to wait eagerly on the glorification of your body on earth. So when you get pains, when you get like a cold, I've been fighting all week, I can think that, use that to say a day's going to come, I'm not going to have any colds, right? Somebody gets sick and you're, somebody dies, you use that to hope in heaven, wait eagerly, a day's going to come and that's not going to happen anymore. Build prayer life, build into your prayer life. Ask him to come soon. Take a walk and stare. Y'all have heard me do this before. Stare into the eastern sky. Just look for a minute. Maybe he's going to show up. Teach that. to Teach your heart to wait eagerly. Remind each other that Jesus is coming back and he's going to make all things right. Don't use that as a cop-out, by the way. Weep with those that weep. But remind them Christ is returning. Wait eagerly for the return of Christ. Be looking. Don't be found asleep. Jesus has a clear word for those that are not looking for him. He condemns such people. Insert parable of the ten virgins there. Thirdly, wait patiently. Join a church. Wait eagerly. Thirdly, wait patiently. Now this sounds a little bit more like what waiting is. You can see Paul's counsel to wait patiently there in verse 25. And this is hard, right? How do we wait eagerly and patiently? God wants his children to be eager about his return, but he wants the expectations of his return to be appropriate. That's patience. And so for, the, for, for Christmas this year, we gave our kids a trip to SeaWorld and Disney World, right? We're, we're on our way down, and what are my kids doing? How much longer? How much longer? How much, when are we going to get to SeaWorld? When are we going to get to SeaWorld? It's coming. It's going to come. It's going to come. It's going to come. It's going to come. Right, what, about, what about now? Five, literally, like three minutes later. All right, we're, we're just look at the clock. We're two minutes beyond when we said it was 30 minutes. Right. So they're eager, but they're not patient. Right. And we say to them, what, parents, what do we say? Be patient. We'll get there in the fullness of time. <laughs> and when it came, they loved it. Right. Wait patiently. Be eager. But understand that God in His infinite time, in the fullness of time, He will come. And it's hard to do, guys. If I was being honest, can I just share with you a little bit of my struggles in this? This is probably the hardest for me. Because I'm going. I'm not the only one in this room. Uh, it's been 2,000 years. It's been a long time, Jesus. You said it'd be soon. Uh, maybe the Bible's not true. And so that's when I read the best line outside of the Bible on my sabbatical. Richard Baxter wrote this doorstop, right? It's like this big, not really, but it's like that big. Saints everlasting rest. And here's what he said about this for those of us that are struggling with the timeliness of Jesus' soon return. Here's what he said. He goes on to note that God has established four seasons and every single year those seasons come exactly at the same time. And then he reminded us Baxter did, that God promised to the Egyptians that they would in 400 years be rescued out of slavery and then come in. And that's exactly when God came. He came in 400 years, 430 years. He came right then. 
And then he reminded the prophecy of Daniel, that Christ would come seven seventies of years. And that's exactly when Jesus arrived, literally to the day. It confounds liberal scholars. They can't figure out how Daniel got it right. And then Baxter goes on to say, he says that as God has given the work, uh, sorry, as God has given the stork, the crane, the swallow to know their appointed time, he will surely keep his time. When we have endured a hard winter in this cold climate, will not the revival of spring be seasonable? God has answered every single promise of timeliness. We can trust him for this one. Last one, briefly. Consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. Join a church. Wait eager, learn to wait eagerly, wait patiently, and consider Jesus. Now, attempting to construct a vision for the Christian life in heaven so as to orient us in the now is no easy task. We're, we're looking to the unseen, right? So it's easy to navigate a vision for a life as a lawyer. Go down to the law firm, see what they're doing there. Somehow that's inspirational to lawyers. Then you'll have to explain that to me later. And then you go back, you can do undergrad, you, you go to law school, you get an You get an internship. And then you get the job. Off you go. Same thing with the American dream. You can go down to AU Park and see. There it is. 2.3 kids, a dog, white fence, nice house. Everybody's happy. Not really. But anyway, that's the vision. You can see it. You watch advertisements, movement. They convince you of it. It makes sense because you can see it. So orienting our lives by a future unseen reality that is so encompassing and full of glory, glory and void of pain, it's hard to imagine. So consider Jesus. Study him, not as a historical figure. Study him as you would a lover. Treasure how he speaks and what he says. Notice what he loves and what he hates. See his miracles as previews of coming attractions in heaven. Consider that it was the joy set before him. Same vision to endure the cross. And then pay attention to what he does after the resurrection. And map that onto a view of creation that takes away all the bad and enlivens all the good, and you at least have some help. Consider Jesus, the resurrected and reigning Jesus. After all, he in heaven will be our chief delight. And so, brothers and sisters, if we are going to really change, it won't be merely by trying harder. It won't merely be by getting more information. It won't merely be by just getting some nice warm and fuzzies. It will be by gazing longer at the glory that is to be revealed to us in heaven. And soon enough, church family, it will be here. It will be here. But until he comes, may he find us together eagerly and patiently waiting for his return. Let's pray. The hope that everybody on planet earth has, Father, is found in you. Everybody wants a better world. Nobody has to be convinced of that. And we thank you that in Christ we have promise and true hope of that future. And so, God, we beg of you, by your grace and for your glory, help us to put off the habits that moor us to this world and put on the habits that entice us to a glorious eternality with you on a glorified earth with glorified bodies. Thank you for Jesus that makes it all possible for his glory, for our good. We pray in his name. Amen.